This is KBOO Portland. It's 9 a.m. and it's time for Sprouts. Local stories to a global audience produced at a different location every week. The majority of all human viruses were all zoonotic. They transferred from an animal over to a human. We as human beings circulate coronaviruses pretty readily with one another and our immune system is somewhat acclimated to those coronaviruses. But what's unique about this one is that it hasn't circulated amongst human beings because we're seeing this one happen in, in real time and it's going to take some time for our immune system to become acclimated to it, probably five to ten years before it just becomes one of the common colds. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Radio Network and for the next half hour we're going to talk coronavirus. Mark Allendary, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans, will share information with us about the Nova Coronavirus COVID-19, what it really is, how it will likely affect our lives, and he'll share some valuable information about things you can do and think about as the virus approaches your community. Here's Mark Allen. Hello, my name is Dr. Mark Allendary. I'm an infectious diseases doctor with Access Health of Louisiana, which is a federally qualified healthcare clinic in the state of Louisiana, and I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana. And you're with a community radio station as well, right? That's right. I'm the founder of the community radio station 102.3 WHIVLP. I'm an infectious diseases doctor, so I got to actually name the station. I got to use the letters H and I and V as a surrogate for all things human rights and social justice. And our radio station is dedicated to human rights and social justice. You actually have worked all over the world in your area of expertise, dealing with other pandemics and epidemics. That's right. I have worked through Africa, looking at other viral pandemics. In the past, we've investigated the Lhasa fever virus, Guinea, Cori, and after that, the hantavirus epidemic that was on the Navajo Reservation. And then most recently, the Ebola epidemic in 2014-2015, I was working for the World Health Organization, certainly Katrina and, and in Haiti. I was uh, on the ground a couple days after the earthquake in Haiti and kind of remained there for a couple weeks. And now we have this new coronavirus. In your experience, what do you see us looking at compared to what you've worked on with other infectious diseases? Let me just take a step back and explain. The common cold that we all get every year, 10% of those circulating viruses are coronaviruses. Uh, so I'm, I'm 51 and assuming I get a common cold every year, it stands to reason that over the course of five decades, one of my common colds was likely to be due to a coronavirus. So this coronavirus, this is a novel virus. It has origins in an animal, which is called a zoonosis. In fact, the majority of all human viruses were all transferred over from an animal over to a human. But what's unique about this one, because we're seeing this one happen in, in real time, is that because it hasn't circulated amongst human beings, it's going to take probably five to ten years before it just becomes one of the common colds that we see. And it's going to take some time for our immune system to get used to it, if you will, or become acclimated to it. And so what we're seeing is that people with weakened immune systems, elderly or immunocompromising illnesses, so HIV or hepatitis C, diabetes, obesity, other chronic illnesses, smokers, and in the past we've seen pregnant women also be vulnerable to some of these viral epidemics. So what we're seeing here is a very, very, very transmissible virus for it. You know, we don't know what this one is, is looking like. And fortunately, when a virus is very infectious, it moves from person to person pretty easy, it tends to be less virulent. In other words, it tends to be less dangerous. Viruses that are more dangerous, fortunately, tend to be less transmissible. And so that's what we're seeing here with this virus, is we're seeing a very, very, very contagious virus. It, it moves amongst people very, very readily. However, it has a very low mortality rate. Now, the U.S.'s mortality rate right now, as we record this on the 10th, I think, of March, the mortality rate is around 5.7, and that's a pretty high mortality rate compared to what the WHO's mortality rate, uh, what they estimate at 3.4, versus what South Korea's mortality rate, which is 0.5. I will bring our attention to South Korea and what an amazing job South Korea is doing. I'm going to hang my hat with the South Koreans because they have done the most amount of testing, 10,000 a day. 
and they have something like 200,000 tests that they've performed at this point. Their mortality rate is so low because the denominator, when they, they are looking at how these rates work, which is essentially the number of people who died over the total number of people with the illness, the reason why our mortality rates are so high here in the U.S. is that we just don't have enough tests. And this is the major reason why our mortality rates are a lot higher. Um, and also here in the U.S., I'm just not 100% sure that at this point there is the sort of readiness that a large country like ours that is somewhat takes pride in its individualism where quarantining folks is going to be quite difficult. So I think at this point it's fair to tell people it's likely that there's going to be some disruption, the daily life, uh, interactions, uh, engagements, employments, and that sort of stuff that we engage in on a regular basis is going to probably be changed in our daily lives. As I'm reading the news here in New Orleans, we had a big Patrick's Day parade planned for this weekend, and that just was canceled. Yesterday on my radio program, we had on a representative from the New Orleans Women's and Children's Shelter and they were recognizing that this could be particularly an issue because it's likely that there is going to be an uptick in people becoming homeless as a result of, of this virus. So this is what happens when epidemics occur. This has happened thousands of times over the history of humanity, and this is just something that's par for the course. It's just that we haven't seen one of these in so long. In fact, the last big pandemic that we had was in 1918, which was the uh, great influenza pandemic, which, according to estimates, killed 50 to 100 million people on the globe. Uh, you know, I don't think that we're going to see that large of a, of a mortality rate. Certainly in those days, they didn't even know what a virus was. So certainly I think we're going to do a lot better than uh, in 1918. But I think that it's fair for people to recognize that they should be prepared Preparation in the form of very, very, very solid hand-washing skills, soap and water, 20 seconds. Hand sanitizers should have 60 to 90% alcohol content in it. I'm personally recommending folks to have oral thermometers at home and that we all need to come to a common definition of a fever, which is 100.4. That's 100.4. So anything above 100.4 or 38 degrees Celsius. And then lastly, to make sure that you're stocked up on, on your medications, your prescriptions. And then also for 80% of the population, this is a common cold. It feels like a cold. So have uh, cough and cold medicines around the house because once coughing starts, you definitely want to have some sort of cough suppressant on hand. Um, if you do feel like you have the virus and you do have a doctor or hospital to call, the first thing they're going to ask you is what your temperature is. So make sure you have that oral thermometer on hand. What do, you, what do we do in the setting of somebody who, you know, has a fever, has a cough, and a little bit of shortness of breath, but doesn't really necessarily need to be in the hospital? Should they go to their doctor? Is getting a positive test more important or is making sure somebody stays home and not exposing anybody which is more important and of course we're not getting any recommendations unfortunately from the CDC because I'm afraid I think the CDC is somewhat limited in, in what they can talk about given how communication needs to go through the vice president's office so you know my personal recommendation to people is that if you are feeling sick you have a fever you have a cough a little bit of shortness of breath but you're not you know you're not sick sick Stay home. Self-quarantine. What exactly is a self-quarantine? So the, that's a great question. I don't know if there's an actual. That, that is a term that is fairly new. Uh, at least I've never heard it before, and if I have, I've never really thought about it. But that just basically means you're voluntarily staying at home essentially for 14 days with very limited contacts with anybody. You know, when I came back home from being in Sierra Leone, I was in quarantine for 21 days, and, and I was having the state health department coming on checking on me. They had to visually look at me twice a day, and they were taking my temperature twice a day to make sure that I didn't have, uh, uh, I wasn't coming home with Ebola. And when you're in this quarantine, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting to find out if you're sick? Are you waiting for it to, for the virus to come and go, or all the above? Essentially, what you're trying to do is you're trying to remove the potential of transmitting this virus to another individual, essentially. And I think we're going to learn more about this. And again, we're going to get a lot of information coming out of South Korea really, really soon. And how exactly do you give it to somebody else? 
So it's transmitted through uh, what are called respiratory droplets. So it's really through breathing, uh, coughing, sneezing, and or these respiratory droplets fall on a table, on, on a desk, you know, on a shopping cart in a supermarket. And what's a respiratory droplet? Saliva, spit. But there sometimes can be very microscopic, and the virus can kind of live in that respiratory droplet. So it could be transferred, you know, transmitted about upwards of possibly three to six feet with a sneeze or a cough, or it could kind of catch a little bit of a wind and travel for, you know, a, a, a yard or two. And this brings up this idea of surgical masks. Like, and surgical masks, the size of this virus is about 0.1 micron. And just to give that size context, the human hair is 75 microns. So when you look at a surgical mask, not the N99s or the N95s, those are the masks that you see doctors and nurses wearing in the hospitals. But these surgical masks, the ones that are very, very common that you see all around that were essentially created so that surgeons did not sneeze cough into their surgical site that they were working over. But the stitching on a surgical mask is like the equivalent of a chain link fence trying to hold back uh, flooding waters uh, rushing through. So that's how small the virus is uh, in comparison to what that stitching on that mask look like. So masks are not necessarily helpful. Um, if, you, if you twist my arm, I could say, well, you know, maybe, maybe masks could potentially be helpful in possibly preventing you from touching your face or touching your nose or, or what have you. But these respiratory droplets can either be inhaled through the mouth and the nose and then they get into the lungs or if it's on a table, if somebody's talking and coughing uh, on a table, let's say, and then a few minutes later, somebody else walks in and puts their hand on the, their table, and then they touch their mouth uh, or their eyes or their nose or, you know, or what have you on their face, then that is a portal of entry for a virus that ultimately is going to make its way down into the lungs. And it's in the lungs that causes these, these little pockets of, of viral pneumonia. Um, and, so, and so that's how people are ultimately uh, getting this virus. So the virus ultimately leads to some form of pneumonia? The virus ultimately leads to some form of pneumonia. And for people that are older and for people who are vulnerable, immunosuppressed, uh, you know, chronic medical conditions, diabetes, smokers, uh, this sort of stuff, um, it can lead to a, uh, um, that viral pneumonia can trigger this inflammatory response that's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is known uh, as ARDS, it's acute respiratory distress syndrome. And uh, I'm going to say ARDS, or people call it ARDS as well. So in the setting of ARDS, what happens <clears throat> is that the, 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 the lungs kick up this very intense inflammatory response and uh, it, with inflammation comes fluid. Think about like if you sprain your ankle, like playing basketball, or if you trip and fall and your ankle's swollen, that swelling uh, is, is fluid in, in, in your ankle, let's say, and that, that redness um, is from that inflammation that you get. Well, that same thing happens in your lungs. And when that happens in your lungs, what typically happens is um, you can't engage in the process of ventilation, so that's uh, getting rid of the CO2 that's been accumulated in the blood. And then oxygenation, which is trying to bring in new, fresh oxygen into the blood so that the cells can be oxygenated. That process is blunted with all that inflammatory fluid that's sitting in the lungs. And in some people, that could be very, very intense. And so this is one of the mechanisms by which we're seeing people pass away with uh, this, this coronavirus. You're listening to Sprouts, radio from the grassroots, a weekly program bringing you local radio productions of global interest. I'm Ursula Rudenberg, and I'm speaking with Mark Allen Derry, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans, sharing information about the Nova coronavirus COVID-19, what it really is, how it's likely to affect our lives, and ways you can think about it and things you can do. Can I go back just for a minute to the explanation of the virus itself? You were saying that this is a new virus, and that's part of the reason why we don't have a natural resistance to it yet. Immunity. And so just to be very clear, viruses become resistant, we become immune. Are you saying that it's new to humans and it existed before in animals, 
Or are you saying that actually a new virus was created in the process of it moving from an animal to humans, in a sense, changed and became something completely different than what the animals had? That's a great question. So, so is it a new virus? Absolutely not. This is a virus of which has been circulating among bats for a long time. They were very, very clear on. In fact, I, I, I don't know how, how better, more emphatically I can say, this virus started in a bat, there probably was an intermediate host, and now it's in humans. So is it a new virus? No, it's not a new virus. But to get to the technical answer to your question, Ursula, when it comes into humans, technically it is a new virus, right? Because now it's no longer circulating in an intermediate host, or it's not circulating amongst bats anymore, fruit bats. It's now circulating amongst humans. And then once it starts circulating amongst humans, it's going to evolve because it's evolving to a human immune system. So technically, it is going to change. It's still going to be a coronavirus, but technically speaking, it becomes a new virus just because it has a new host. The virus, because it is adapting like that, it seems like it's a living entity because it's it's changing Do you see the virus as something that's alive, or is it something that has a different definition? That, again, is another excellent question. The viruses are not necessarily alive by the way biologists define life, right? So in that you have an organism, it takes in some entity for energy, and then it processes it, and then it expels it in one way or another, and then it has some sort of reproductive capabilities. Viruses don't do that at all. Viruses exist, they get into the human genome, they take over the human genome's DNA processing and cellular machinery to create new parts for itself, and it replicates itself like a machine. You grab a part here, a part here, a part here, and the virus is able to do that, and then it gets kicked out of that cell and goes and infects another cell. So it's not really something that we refer to as life like you would refer to a human being or a single cell organism or a fungus. So it's hard to answer that question. So what they were able to do was a lot of really fascinating technology that is going to get us to vaccines very, very soon. Something to watch out for when the president was making these comments that vaccines would be ready in about three months or so, what he was mistaking was that while, yes, they were able to generate a vaccine or what they're doing is they're able to generate a vaccine by essentially figuring out where the antigens, the the parts of the virus that are going to trigger the immune system. So they'll probably get that done in about three months or so. They're right. I mean, Some of these new technologies are able to even do it even sooner through these really amazing new techniques that are being generated uh, as we speak. The problem is is that you have to test these vaccines for safety. So we're another possibly two years out from uh, having a vaccine. You've given us a lot of information about just how to think about it. Should people be worried about going to hospitals? So that's a great question. And then at this point, if you are acutely ill, please go to a hospital. If you feel like you have a little bit of a fever and a little bit of a cough and you just feel like this is a cold, the hospital's not a good place for you. I mean, they're going to bring you in because that's what we do. Nobody gets turned away. But if you have a cold or flu-like illness and you feel like you could do well by yourself, it doesn't matter whether or not you need to get a test or not. As long as you're doing okay, fevers are the body's way of just basically cooking a little bit us to make it as an inhospitable environment for a microorganism. But if you're feeling acutely ill, where you're just not able to breathe or can't break a fever, or certainly fevers lead to seizures, no, 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 you need to be going to the hospital immediately. Okay, so then I want to have a strong immune system as a preventative measure. What comes to your mind first? First of all, vitamin C, uh-uh, that's not a thing. These immune boosters, That's not a thing. But there are some things that are really interesting. So sleeping, there's some data to suggest that sleeping and probably why when people are sick, they sleep, your immune system tends to be more efficacious when you're sleeping. So go ahead, go to sleep. There's also data to suggest that vitamin D may be particularly helpful. We don't know at what dose, but vitamin D, and there's some really interesting information that dates back to 2010 that I'm seeing there's some data to suggest that zinc may have an effect on just coronaviruses whole, but the way that the the scientists got zinc into the cells was they used these little molecular tricks that just work 
and attest to, but don't necessarily work uh, with humans. So if you just eat a normal diet, you will get enough vitamin C. There's no such thing as megadosing on vitamin C. Vitamins don't really help at all. Don't buy anything that's like immunoboosting or whatever. That doesn't really help. The real thing more than anything else is prevention. Hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, and staying away from large events. Again, I have a feeling they're all gonna be canceled anyway. Civic leaders are gonna start, they're all watching one another. And I have a feeling that people are going to just be staying home mostly, and that's a preventative tool. So I'm curious, should I be shaking people's hands anymore? Should I cancel my travel plans? Should I not go to public events? Should I go to restaurants? There's kind of a search going on right now for where are the boundaries here. What what would you say? First, I'm going to say tongue-in-cheek. I've been waiting my whole career 20 years now so that I could just engage in elbow bumps and not shake hands anymore. (laughs) That's from an infectious diseases doctor's perspective. So I've stopped shaking hands uh, completely. And and again, take it from somebody who has done these epidemics for a long time. Elbow bumping has been something that ID doctors have been doing for a long time because it, you know, there is something when I was in uh, Sierra Leone in Freetown with the WHO during the Ebola epidemic, that was a no touch. There was not even elbow bump culture. And, and as human beings, it's pretty remarkable that, like, I, you know, after a couple days, after a week or so, not, not engaging in just a, a handshake or a, a hug or what have you, just any sort of human interaction was, was pretty remarkable. So the, the elbow bumping actually works pretty well. And there's actually been some good science, some good studies that have shown that the most transmission that happens between two people in terms of touching happens between handshakes, and then farther down the list uh, is fist bumping, and then further down the list after that is, is elbow bumping. So I've been kind of greeting people with elbow bumping, and that's pretty. we're seeing that pretty commonly here in New Orleans. In terms of going to restaurants, I've been told that coffee shops in Seattle are slowly kind of becoming empty. Restaurant owner friends of mine have been calling me and asking me about stuff, and I suspect that we're going to probably start seeing less folks going outside. And this circles back to this conversation of what we were saying about self-quarantining, that you're going to start seeing people spend a little bit more time indoors. And I think that this idea of people staying indoors is not a bad thing to do. I would definitely consider limiting non-essential travel. At this point, I would say it's probably not a good idea unless it's absolutely urgent. Try to focus on staying in one place at this point. And again, when I talk about people's lives being somewhat changed and or limited. This is certainly an example of what I mean by that. People are pretty upset about this. They're frightened by it. Do you feel creeped out by this? Not at all. I grew up in Los Angeles when I was a little boy. My my father, he was optometrist to the stars, and I had started this early fascination with infectious diseases even as a, as a young person. And I've been around infectious diseases my whole life. And so, for example, when I was four months in Sierra Leone, so I was going into the communities, finding where the cases of Ebola were, finding how it was transmitted, mostly through funerals, finding out who was at the funerals, and then doing contact tracing. And I never wore gloves or gowns or masks or anything. So I was never really afraid when I walked into city. And I walked into some situations where all families were all splayed out on the floor, all sick with Ebola. You just don't touch anything. And then if I ever did touch anything, I'd always have gloves on me. So I'm not necessarily driven by fear because I recognize how these things transmit. Now, that's me. I'm an infectious diseases doctor. When I was a boy in Los Angeles, I just was struck by the fact that a virus was able to interact with a certain population, right? The young person, I was fascinated with how diseases move through very particular populations. So that was my initial fascination. And of course, that led to the understanding of a, a field of science called epidemiology. And epidemiology is essentially the study of infections. But what I will say is, is that infectious diseases are diseases of the poor. And when we're talking about poverty, what we're really talking about are human rights and social, social justice issues, right? And so recognizing that certainly in the 80s, a little less so today, certainly a lot better than it was in the 80s when the president didn't even mention the words HIV until 1988. You were looking at very vulnerable populations, right? Men who have sex with men. Uh, You were looking at uh, IV drug users. 
you were looking at patients, so there was strong racial issues uh, as well. But it wasn't until it hit the hemophiliac population that things changed. That's when you started to see politicians or what have you uh, start to kind of acknowledge HIV because, again, it wasn't in the gay population or the Haitian population or the, the drug-using population, right? Then ultimately, studying you know the interactions of poverty with infectious diseases is something that I um, built my career on, quite frankly. So um, ultimately, I started the radio station as a result of that. I named it WHIV. If I could have named it W Social Justice Radio, I would have, but I had three letters to choose from. And like my wife says, if you give the man three letters, he'll rearrange them to form H and I and V. And again, it's just a surrogate for all things human rights and, and social justice. You know, and it wasn't until as I was growing up that, again, I recognized that poverty is not a human condition. Poverty is an imposed condition. Poverty is just discrimination codified into law. I could tell you living in the Deep South, Jim Crow is the best example uh, of that. And, and reversing uh, poverty is something that would go so far into eliminating uh, infectious diseases, as well as eliminating human suffering, or significantly reducing human suffering at least. But it would go very, very far in helping to uh, reduce the number of, of infectious diseases that we're seeing. And also, let me just add one more thing, Ursula, and let me add a climate change element to what we're seeing as well. As we start seeing further encroachments of the, let's say, the Amazon rainforest, right, um, we're seeing these policies by uh, Bolsonaro allowing the rainforest there to be encroached upon or in some parts of Africa. That's what happened with the Ebola epidemic. It was a little boy who went further and further into the forest until uh, he interacted with the Ebola virus through, I think it was, a, it was a piece of fruit that he found lying on the ground. As more and more humans are encroaching upon these ecological niches, these, these uh, areas where animals have never really interacted with humans before, we're going to start to see more of these viral transmission, or as these vectors of illnesses, mosquitoes, ticks, this sort of stuff, as it starts getting warmer, you're going to start to see some of these illnesses that live in the southern hemisphere, or isolated or they're unique to the southern hemisphere, as it starts to warm, I think that with climate change, we're going to start seeing some of these new infectious diseases we haven't seen here in the U.S., and I think that we're going to probably start seeing more of them as well. Thank you so much, Mark Allen. You, I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people want your time right now. Is there a website that you would recommend for good information? Two websites that I would recommend are the CDC and the WHO, and then the state health department that you live in please go to their website as well. It is a wealth of information on there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's it for Sprouts. We've been listening to information shared with us by Mark Allen Derry, infectious disease doctor from New Orleans. Dr. Derry is also the founder and station manager of WHIVLP Radio in New Orleans. Sprouts is a weekly program produced in collaboration with community radio stations and independent producers around the world. The Sprouts theme music is Torpedoes on Tuesday by Poison Control Center. The program is coordinated and distributed by Pacifica Radio Network. Many thanks to Brian David at Satellite Operation. If you or someone at your station has a radio production that you would like to showcase globally on Sprouts, contact our air traffic controller, Ursula Rudenberg, at URSULA at Pacifica.org. That's me. I'm Ursula Rudenberg at Pacifica Radio Network, wishing you good health. Thank you for listening and see you again next week on Sprouts. Special programming continues with Making Contact, taking us up to the 10 o'clock hour. It remains to be seen whether we'll have 
the Film at 11 program. We're going to be going through a couple of uh, maybe if some, mm, what would you call it, encore presentations of our usual Friday programming programs. Second Fridays, well, we're going to hew as close to that as we can. Shelter in place, folks. Wash your hands. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay tuned to KBOO, Portland, your community radio. This week on Making Contact... I think election fraud has always been a problem and a concern to various extents. And the main issue, whether you're talking about paper ballots or voting machines, is transparency. Transparency is really the number one thing. I think you have to really have the public involved from beginning to end. We've got people that are really trying to cheat to win at all costs. Remember, we are talking about power. Power is never going to be given away by anybody. So it has to be taken. In the United States, vote rigging and election fraud have become increasingly high-tech and more difficult to expose. In this Women Rising radio program, we feature two election protection activists. Andrea Miller is an organizer and digital strategist fighting voter suppression. Jennifer Cohn is an attorney investigating the dangerous flaws in voting machines and technology. I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. I remember when after the hotly disputed Bush versus Gore election in 2000, I volunteered to be a poll worker to see democracy in action for myself. At the end of a 12-hour day, we had to pack up our voting machines, count all the leftover ballots and supplies, and drive them to an unmarked trailer truck where they were loaded up and sent off into the dark of night. No one could tell me when or where these votes would be counted. Meanwhile, election results were already being announced on the radio based on early voting trends. It left me wondering, does every vote really count? For the next election in 2004, I was asked to be in charge of a precinct and sent to a training that primarily dealt with how to set up the voting machines so their legs wouldn't collapse. I was told to pick up our precinct's equipment before election day. That meant that I had the keys to the voting machines, ballots, a card encoder, all in my home for a week with no security to prevent anyone from tampering with the system. On election night, we packed everything up, drove to a drop-off center, and once again I watched in amazement at how our votes were being boxed up just as the election results were being called. The question remains for me, does the U.S. really have free and fair elections? Many of us don't know the first thing about how our votes get counted. When you cast your ballot, how do you know that they're getting it right? That they're getting it right? Yeah. Oh, well, isn't that their job to get it right? Do you trust that your vote is being recorded as intended? What do you uh, think? I think so. What are you basing that on? How do you know that they got we it right? Know. Well, I'm sure they did. Well, they what are you basing it, that on? They wouldn't be. I don't know. They put basic... it in the machine. I have to assume they they're going the, to they read it correctly. <laughs> A room full of hackers, all trying to hack into voting machines. You can possibly make it accept a fake card or accept any card, so you could add your own votes. These are supposed to be the latest machines. They're still used in elections, and they're running ancient software. I think that, like, if somebody wanted to, it would be pretty easy to fake an election. Report from the Select Committee on Intelligence, United States Senate. Cybersecurity experts have studied a wide range of U.S. voting machines, including both DREs and optical scanners. And in every single case, they found severe vulnerabilities that would allow attackers to sabotage machines and to alter votes. That's why there is overwhelming consensus in the cybersecurity and election integrity research communities that our elections are at risk. One of the critical issues facing our democracy is the use of electronic voting machines, 
Election officials have tried to assure voters that the machines are accurate and safe from hacking, but an increasing number of digital security experts are saying no, they are not secure nor reliable. Attorney Jennifer Cohn has done extensive investigation into voter technology and is sounding the alarm. I got drawn in by at least two things. The first was this chasm between what election officials were telling the public about the security of our elections, comparing that with what election security experts were saying about the security of our elections. Tom Hicks, who is on the Federal Election Assistance Commission, which certifies voting machines, was on the news telling the public that we didn't have to really worry about voting machines being hacked because they weren't connected to the internet. But even when voting machines themselves are not connected to the internet, they all receive programming from these centralized county or state computers. And in many cases, those do connect to the internet. So in reality, we're really just one or two steps away from having an internet hacker attack our system. When you're dealing with a black box voting machine, the public has no way of knowing what's happening inside of the machine. And the best way to describe transparency in this context is a translation from a German court ruling. I think it was in 2009, their constitutional court outlawed touchscreen voting machines and said that the average person needs to be able to understand the mechanisms that are being used to count their votes. And if you can't do that, then it's unconstitutional. That was in Germany. But the same principle, if not in law, just in logic, applies to elections everywhere. Transparency is really the number one thing. And I think it's certainly conceivable that political operatives have hacked some prior elections. There are very many red flags. I don't say that there's proof, but one of the red flags is that no one ever seems to really allow meaningful manual recounts. And the other thing with these touchscreens is to have disproportionate distribution of touchscreen voting machines. In Ohio in 2004, typically it was in the high proportion minority districts. There were lines from five to ten hours long, which absolutely can make a huge difference. I, I actually am pretty certain there's going to be some disproportionate distribution. There are arguments over that already in Georgia. In Georgia, there is a lawsuit that was filed by a small nonprofit called the Coalition for Good Governance, and it's founded by a woman named Marilyn Marks, who's a really fantastic election security advocate, and they have done a few things. The first step was to get a court ruling that Georgia's current paperless touchscreen voting machines are unconstitutional because they deprive voters of the right to have their votes counted as cast. And they actually got the federal court to rule to find them unconstitutional, which was huge. The second step is to get a similar ruling for these new touchscreen universal use barcode ballot marking devices. It appears that it is not going to happen in time for the primaries, but I think there is, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx anything, a reasonable chance that they may prevail in time for the general election. Jennifer Cohn is concerned about electronic ballot marking devices, or BMDs, because there have been problems with them in previous elections. She wants them banned from use. They are essentially really complicated, hackable, malfunctionable electronic pens. And then if you're going to want to have a machine count the ballots, you still need the scanners. And I, I've really been tracking the purchases of these systems throughout the country, and it's very alarming. It's often the most populous counties in many states that have purchased these between 2016 and now, and there are some swing states that have done this. We've had over a decade and a half of vote flipping that's always attributed to calibration errors, and these new ballot marking devices are going to have the same problems. And this is despite the fact in Pennsylvania, an ESNS representative gave this presentation, and it's on YouTube, where he's assuring everybody, scouts honor, that you don't have to worry about calibration with these new machines, and everybody sort of cheers, yay, we don't have to worry about calibration. Well, guess what? In Northampton County, Pennsylvania, they had massive issues with calibration and vote flipping. So this is just another problem. Jennifer mentioned ESNS, a company that provides almost half of the voting technology in the U.S., she contends that it raises serious red flags when private for-profit companies, using proprietary rights to keep their technology secret, monopolize our elections. 
and an investigation by the Guardian found that voting machine companies have been actively seeking to avoid scrutiny. Right now, two vendors, ESNS of Omaha, Nebraska, and Dominion Voting, which at least started out as a Canadian company, account for more than 80% of U.S. election equipment. There's a third vendor called Heart InterCivic that accounts for about another 11%. So combined, the three vendors account for about 93% of U.S. election equipment, and all three are owned by private equity, which means we really don't know very much about who specifically owns the companies, their LLCs. ESNS, which accounts currently for about 44% of U.S. election equipment, was founded in the 1970s by two brothers named Bob and Todd Urosevich, and they founded the company with money from the families of two religious right activist billionaires. One was named Howard Amundsen Jr., and the other was named Nelson Bunker Hunt. Both of these billionaires were major donors to the Chalcedon Foundation, which is Christian Reconstruction's main think tank. Both of these individuals, Hunt and Amundsen, were high-profile and early members of a very powerful and secretive right-wing group called the Council for National Policy. And its recent members, as of 2014, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which obtained a copy of its 2014 directory, include the whole Cambridge Analytica cabal, which includes Kellyanne Conway, who was a consultant for Cambridge Analytica, Steve Bannon, who was the vice president of Cambridge Analytica, and Bob and Rebecca Mercer, who were the founders of Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica is the organization that worked with the 2016 Trump campaign on big data assimilation, and they used stolen Facebook data from many, many Facebook users to do targeted advertising. Other members of the Council for National Policy include Richard DeVos, Jay Sekulow, who is Trump's personal attorney, and it also includes Wayne LaPierre of the NRA. This 2014 directory also states that the Council for National Policy's goal is by 2020 to have, as they put it, reestablished or reaffirmed both religious and economic liberty under the U.S. Constitution. Many of the members in the group are a very devout or hard right religious right activists, and it's really a networking group for the religious right and billionaires. After it was sued by the U.S. government in 2019, Cambridge Analytica declared bankruptcy. It was then acquired by a holding company with direct ties to its previous founder, right-wing billionaire Robert Mercer. Mercer and others in the Council for National Policy preach an ideology called dominionism, which seeks to impose a Christian government in the U.S. based on a fundamentalist interpretation of biblical law. Jennifer monitors the progress of legislation designed to rein in private equity voting technology companies and supports passage of the SAFE Act, which will ban BMDs or ballot marking devices. She also advocates for the use of hand-marked paper ballots and mandatory audits. There have been several bills in the U.S. Congress to make our elections more secure. So the first, it's called the PAVE Act, most of the universal use ballot marking devices would be banned under it, the ones with barcodes, which is most of the current generation. But it would also ban internet connectivity and remote access. There's another bill called the SAFE Act, which incorporated most, but not all, of the provisions of the PAVE Act. And it passed the House and went back to the Senate. But Mitch McConnell pretty much said that they were all dead on arrival and hasn't even allowed a Senate vote on any of them. Mitch McConnell is not, to my knowledge, directly connected with Kellyanne Conway and the other members of the CMP, but he did receive donations from both of these mega vendors, ESNS and Dominion Voting, before putting the kibosh on any sort of meaningful election security legislation. There are always things we can do short of even federal legislation, and what that requires is advocacy at sort of the grassroots. You can start with just an inquiry, just sending an email or making a phone call and asking 
are we going to be using electronic poll books on election day? And if so, are you going to have backup paper voter lists? And then if the answer is no, I'm on Twitter at JennyCone1, and I now have this very large following of over 100,000 people, and quite a few in the media do follow me now, and I will amplify it for you. Andrea Miller is the co-executive director in charge of information technology with People Demanding Action based in Virginia. She also spearheads the Center for Common Ground's Reclaim Our Vote campaign. In 2015, nearly half of the seats in the Virginia state legislature did not even have a Democratic Party contender. Miller and other grassroots organizers helped change that, making Virginia's legislature more representative of the state's diverse population. Andrea agrees with Jennifer Cohn about the dangers of voting machine technology, starting with electronic poll books. Ah, electronic poll books. Wow. Those are amazing things because my mother had a really great saying, anything made by man breaks. It's not a question of if, it's a matter of when. So polling books, when they break, they're going to break on Election Day. And so you can't be sitting there going, well, I have no idea who the voters are, so, you know, nobody gets to vote. How's that? Or we also have seen the threat and the issue with hacking. You have an electronic poll book. It is living out there in the ether Someone could go in, they could change addresses, shift one column down, and everybody on that poll book is screwed because now nobody is giving you the right address. So now what do you do? Our technology, while it's designed to help us, we haven't thought it through properly, and we are just opening ourselves up for a major, major fall. Can anybody say 2020 Iowa caucus. Virginia had voting machines up until 2013. So when I voted in the 2013 primary, I was voting on a touchscreen machine. And when I touched the screen for the person I wanted to vote for and went next, and it was showing me what I'd marked, that was not what I marked. So I went back, did it again. It took me three tries on that touchscreen machine before I was able to get the candidates that I wanted. Now, that also happened to the man who was governor. The governor tried to vote, and the machine, it wasn't properly calibrated. It would not accept the people he had selected. So that's why Virginia went suddenly. We literally turned on a dime. 2014 in the general, machines were gone, and 90% of Virginia counties were voting on paper. So let's look at Virginia. In 2017, we got a lot of candidates to run. Grassroots activist type people decided they were going to run for office. All of them, it was their first run. Many of them had $10,000, maybe $20,000 for a well-funded one, going up against a 5, 10, 15-year incumbent who had millions of dollars in the bank. And with grassroots support, we came within one vote of one seat of time for control of a house. And then 2019, Democrats took control of her Senate and her house. That is what changed Virginia. 
Virginia ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, the Virginia Green New Deal, which is a very aggressive, progressive Green New Deal, passed out of the Labor and Commerce Committee. Virginia is working on repealing right to work. Virginia is a completely different place. And I always say thank you to everybody who helped us because Virginia can now say she is the former capital of the Confederacy. We did two main things, and there's really only two things you can do for elections. Number one, we looked at who were the people who have been, I call it, deregistered. And we work with what we call underrepresented voters, African-American, Hispanic, Native American, Asians. And so I started looking at how many voters of color were in Virginia, who voted, who didn't vote. And I realized what we really needed to do was add community of color voters So we were giving people valuable information. We were letting them know, you better check your voter registration status, and if it's not active, you're going to have to get re-registered. Election purging. Election purging. Voter purging. Purges people from its voter roll. 125,000 voters. Representative Raul Grijalva released a statement. It reads in part, where there are lines lasting hours on end, ballot shortages, identification issues, erroneous party affiliations, or sparse polling locations, we must document these problems and implement policies that ensure they never happen again. Since the Supreme Court's gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, it's been open season on voting rights nationwide. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, voter suppression happens in many ways. That's why Andrea Miller founded the Center for Common Ground to empower underrepresented voters. Her advocacy focuses on the American South, a region well known for voter disenfranchisement against communities of color, and more recently, against younger voters. Her Reclaim Our Vote campaign is changing southern states like North Carolina, where a recent court ruling said that the state's suppression of African-American voters was done with, quote, almost surgical precision. The Voting Rights Act did put standards into place. And the other thing that it did was it looked very hard at states that had tried to prevent people from voting based on race or religion or various things, and they had come up with a term that they called preclearance. In order to change your state election laws, you had to get permission from the Department of Justice to make these changes. And that had kept everything much more even-handed. And so what happened was, under President Obama, there was this voice and this rolling call that America is now post-racial. We don't need preclearance anymore, which basically neutered it. And the moment that happened, then we started seeing states doing these wild and crazy things. We see Chris Kobach of Kansas saying, oh, there are these rampant issues of voter fraud. People are voting in multiple states. Like, wait a minute, how is that possible? You know, are, are we talking about people jumping on their own private jet and flying from state to state to, to vote? And 7.8 million people lost their ability to vote. Notice I didn't say right, I said their ability. If we had a right, it wouldn't be so easy to take it from us, which is why they stopped too soon in the civil rights movement they needed to take voting as a right all the way to the Constitution. If they had done that, 
that would have struck down felony disenfranchisement laws. So they stopped too soon. So that's one of the other things that I do work on, constitutional right to vote. One of the other incredible forms of voter suppression, and it was in the movie Suppressed, would be closing a polling location. So they wanted to close that polling location in Georgia, saying, oh, it costs $4,000, and that's just, we can't spend $4,000 to allow all these black people to vote. You know, who can afford that? And then it turns out they're spending $18,000 a year on Christmas decorations. You know, it's like, guys, really, come on, please. So you just have... Every state has different rules. Every state has come up with a new twist or a new gotcha for the unsuspecting voters. My favorite was in 2015 when Alabama went to strict photo ID, they closed every DMV in the Alabama Black Belt. Just closed them. Said, gee, gosh, golly, we don't have money to run the DMV. Apparently, in no county in the Black Belt did they have enough money to keep the DMV office open. For the upcoming election, Andrea hopes to mobilize the largest turnout ever, and key to that turnout is the 18 to 24-year-old voter. Andrea Miller has turned her attention to the youth vote. There are so many different ways that that 18 to 24-year-old vote is suppressed. For instance, in Texas, you can vote and use a handgun license as your ID, but you can't use your college ID as a photo ID. You have to either get a Texas driver's license or buy a Texas ID. In many states, the voting precinct is a long way from campus. So in Alabama, we are working on the notion of let's get voting precincts on campus. Andrea Miller is also convinced that in order to win in 2020, Democrats must concentrate on taking back the South. Her work promotes this strategy. Civics lesson on America. America, we do not elect the president by popular vote. So when I ask the question, how many votes do you need to win the White House? There is only one correct answer, 270. We need 270 electoral votes. Boom, that's it. That's the way it works. Doesn't matter that we wish it worked some other way. It doesn't. So that means we're 39 votes short. Texas has got 38 of the 39 votes that we need. One state, Texas, is coming in right behind California. And then Georgia, Georgia's got two Senate races and 16 electoral votes. North Carolina's got 15. Alabama's got nine. Arizona's got 11. Florida's got 29. These are the numbers that I live with every day of my life. Andrea supports eliminating electronic voting machines and returning to verifiable paper ballots, restoring voting rights to formerly incarcerated people, and making Election Day a federal holiday. And that's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, produced by Women Rising Radio. Listen to our programs at womenrisingradio.com and at radioproject.org. Special thanks to Lisa Farino and National Voter Corps, and to Lisa Rudman and Making Contact. Women Rising Radio's producer is Lynn Feinerman, audio engineers Emily Harris and Stephanie Welch, and I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Thanks for listening.
This is KBOO Portland. It's coming up on 10 a.m. when we'll hear some more from the radio zine, Our Wild Calling. This is the COVID-19 2020 special programming block. Stay tuned. My name is Suzanne Legrand, and this is Radio Zine. Today, my guest is Richard Loop, who is a journalist, environmental activist, and author of over 10 books. He has just published Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Welcome. Howdy. So I'd like to begin by a term that you coined. You coined the term nature deficit disorder. Can you explain what that is and why we are suffering from nature deficit disorder? Um, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I, I uh, introduced that phrase in uh, uh, the first of four books about our connection with nature. I've written 10 books, but these four, last four have been particularly focused on, on that. And uh, the the term was uh, first a tongue-in-cheek phrase that quickly caught on and has uh, uh, entered uh, not only our language but many others. It's now that book is now published in 24 countries, I think. Um, uh, basically, it was a way to describe what many people had felt was happening but had no words to describe. I always uh, say clearly that this is not a known medical diagnosis. Maybe it should be, but it's not now. 